Welcome to the first GateWorld podcast of 2009. You're listening to episode number 24. And today, David and I are talking about Vegas, last week's new episode of Stargate Atlantis. We'll also give you a preview of our brand new interview with Stargate SG-1 actor Ben Browder. And of course, we've got lots of Stargate news and site features to talk about, plus more listener mail. The holidays may be over, but we've still got a refrigerator full of roasted mastage leftovers. The Gate World Podcast starts right now. My name is Darren Sumner, and joining me today, as always, is Gate World's own roasted mastage, David Reed. Oh, jeez. For those people out there who don't know what a mastage is. The horse-like creature that was introduced in the Stargate movie um, has a really great sense of smell and likes chocolate bars. And they were also seen in skeleton form in uh, the season four episode Absolute Power. That's right. I forgot about that. Stargate News. Here are your headlines from GateWorld for January 7th, 2009. Before my trip to Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, I uh, got a chance to get on the phone with Robert Picardo briefly. He was one of the folks that we were hoping to meet with out there, but uh, due to scheduling and Christmas and all that, he wasn't able to meet with us. But uh, we did get to catch up with him over the phone. He was kind enough to let us know what was going on in his world. And he talked about the Atlantis finale and how pleased he was with it. Of course, the finale is airing later this week on Sci-Fi. But Bob basically said, and I'll paraphrase here, he uh, he thought uh, the episode pulled out all the stops, not only with different beloved characters in the Atlantis uh, gallery that pop up, but he uh, thinks it's a pretty spectacular one hour with three different storylines really hurtling toward the conclusion. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Obviously, we've been talking about the the finale for a long time now, and it's going to be kind of bittersweet, but it's certainly nice to hear from from the actors that they thought it was a fitting conclusion for the show. They had a lot of balls up in the air with this particular episode, and they're really in the corner, because you can't... It can't be everything that everyone expects it to be. 520 was not supposed to be the series finale, and the season finale, and the 100th episode. It has a lot of hats to wear. Yeah, they they found out that the show was not going to continue when this episode was was being written. I don't know if Paul Mully had actually started the draft, or if he was still at, at the outline stage. But um, I'm really curious because I've I've heard some of the major, major changes that happen at the end of this episode. I'm kind of curious if they planned those originally and then we're going to work with them in a sixth season. I doubt it. I doubt it. There, There's a big one, and I, I really doubt that that was going to be the case. But it's cool. Yeah. It does have that cool factor. There's a new DVD coming for Stargate fans. This one is the double feature for The Arc of Truth and Continuum together in one package. If you haven't gotten the movies already, you can pick them up. Collect them all. Both together and save a little scratch. Uh, This is coming March 3rd on both DVD and Blu-ray. And uh, if you haven't gotten Arc of Truth on Blu-ray yet, that's also going to be released this coming week on January 13th. I have not gotten a Blu-ray player yet. I saw they were really pushing the new high-def format over the holidays at retail. But I'm going to wait for it to come down a little bit. I've heard... Some shows just weren't designed for Blu-ray, and people get sick watching them. Yeah, you and I were having this conversation the other day, and and I've seen some movies that look really fantastic on Blu-ray, like Pirates of the Caribbean, or obviously anything that's CG animated, and then I've seen Mm -hmm. movies that seem like they were not meant to be seen at that resolution. Obviously, most most theaters don't 
projecting HD, so they look weird. It, it kind of messes with the depth of field. So the DVD for the Continuum and Arc of Truth double pack is going to be listed at $29.98 US, and the Blu-ray is going to be $59.99. Amazon's got them uh, last time we checked for $18.99 DVD and $41.95 Blu-ray. Um, and apparently this one is already out in the UK. They've had it for a few months. And the final Don S. Davis film is going to be coming out later this month, January 31st. It's going to be a sci-fi channel movie of the week called Wyvern, telling the story of a group of Alaskans who must kill a monstrous dragon to stay alive. And again, that's going to be on the 31st of January on the sci-fi channel. Sounds nothing like any of the sci-fi movie of the weeks that have been released <laughs> previously. Not at all. This picture of Don that, that you ran with this news story is awesome. Yeah. He's there with his big gun. I don't know. Is it a shotgun? I'm not looking at it right now. And his sunglasses. And he's just like, come and get it. And Brad Wright, who is, of course, the co-creator of SG-1, Atlantis, and Stargate Universe, recently posted a Q&A with fans over at Joseph Malazzi's blog and talked about the third SG-1 movie. The new information is that uh, he's confirmed that Martin Wood is going to direct the next movie. Uh, the movie is being made. As Joe has said previously on his blog, uh, Carl Binder is writing it with Brad. So there's no working title yet, um, but it's it's the third SG-1 movie. Uh, as Brad told us last year when we talked to him, uh, it's going to be a Jack O'Neill movie. So RDA is going to be in it and is going to be in it significantly. It's, it's apparently about the O'Neill character, so it's not going to be this sort of large extended cameo or guest appearance that that Rick had in Continuum. Yeah, this one will definitely be about Jack, from what I've heard. He also said uh, that Claudia Black, uh, who of course plays Vala, is not going to be in the film, uh, which is obviously uh, disappointing to Vala fans, but not surprising considering the fact that all the actors, I mean, think about how many main cast members there have been on SG-1, including Richard Dean Anderson. It's kind of tough to get them all back together, both in terms of how much they cost and in terms of the fact that they've moved on to, to other projects. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, you know, Brad has said in the past that uh, future SG-1 movies won't necessarily include the whole team because that's a lot of characters to try and service. And so yeah. maybe you do a movie with three or four or five of them and uh, you can you can, I think, in my opinion, you can better service those characters. Uh, and tell some different kinds of stories. So maybe it's maybe it's Vala and Daniel and Cameron in one movie, and then maybe it's Jack and Sam and Daniel and Teal in another movie. And I think that's that's kind of a cool way to do it. I wish that we were getting more than one every other year, though. Yeah, that would be nice. But you know, like Brad said in on our forum the other day, be thankful that you've got something, because uh, it could have easily been nothing. Yeah. So we do need to be thankful. It is a little disappointing to me that that. Arc of Truth, as far as we can tell, and Continuum were so successful in their in their DVD releases last year. Arc came out in March 08, and Continuum in late July, and they apparently exceeded all of MGM sales expectations. So I'm kind of disappointed that it's taken them this long to go ahead and get another movie going, because they're doing the Atlantis movie at the same time. Sci-Fi says they're going to show the Atlantis movie in 2009. So then I'm thinking, you know, with the effects and the marketing and, and all that engine to get a movie done and out. It's going to be 2010 before we see the third SG-1 film. 
Well, dude, they, they can only do so much. There's only like seven or eight guys working that office as the creative force behind the entire Stargate franchise. They can only do so much in a year. Yeah. They've been working on Stargate Universe. You know, it's it, largely the group has to pick up one great big ball at a time and move it a little bit for a little bit further down the track and then sit it down and then pick up another ball and move it. And yeah. like Joe and Paul the Atlantis ball and carried that with Carl and Martin and a couple of the others. But, you know, in order to get anything really pushed far, it's like they all have to get around the ball at once. One particular ball, push it, be it Universe, be it SG-1 movie, be it Atlantis movie. Yeah, and obviously launching a brand new series is, is a heck of a lot of work. Gateworld Features. Be looking for an exclusive video interview with Ben Browder later this week. Gateworld took Ben down to the beach for uh, half an hour. We talked uh, with him about his experiences in the Arctic, working on Going Homer, and what it's like to be Ben Browder, basically. You know, I never asked you how you first started in this business. Um, what did you want to be when you were very young? How did you get to where you are now? I went through uh, a typical number of phases. I was going to be a professional football player. I was yeah. going to be an astronaut. I was going to be a pilot. I was going to be a doctor. I was never going to be a lawyer, <laughs> which is probably why I don't play them on TV. <laughs> uh, so, you know, growing up in North Carolina, acting uh-huh. was not a was not a career choice. I never knew anyone who made a living as an actor. I never mm-hmm. knew anyone who went out to do it. It was only late in the day. I was graduating college before I decided to to try to become a professional actor. How did you find your way to Europe? You know what. I auditioned for an English drama school. I actually auditioned for three English drama schools. Okay. In New York. First time I went to New York City. Uh-huh. Stood around looking at the buildings. Yeah, country boys, we, you know, we look at New York City. Well, this is foreign territory. I, I stepped off the bus at the Port Authority, back when the Port Authority was probably the seediest place in the universe. And I uh, had a guy offer to help me with my bags. And, and really didn't know to say no. Uh, and then stepped out on 42nd Street when... Every other person asked you if you wanted to buy something. And what they were selling was uh, either a service of an illegal nature or a substance of an illegal nature. And did you ask him about Farscape? I'm a major Farscape fan who is desperately waiting word on these new webisodes that Sci-Fi is supposedly producing. We did discuss the webisodes, but uh, you know Ben. He's not going to break anything, but he, he does uh, let us know what he currently knows as far as he's willing to tell us. So we did discuss that. And you may not have noticed what I've been doing for the last six weeks, but we've launched a revised news section that has a new engine powering it. Uh, And this comes along with new comments. You can now create an account and log in to comment on news items. Uh, This is, again, it's kind of a behind-the-scenes change, but it's it's a new engine that I hope is going to help us kick out news a lot faster and a lot more often and streamline our process and get more people to contribute to the site, which is something that we really want for GateWorld in 2009. Those of you out there who consider yourself a bit of a writer, a bit of a news hound, and maybe have thought about writing for the site, send us an email. Now we have a way for you to do that a little bit better. Now here's something that you can go and comment on right now. Uh, Looking ahead to the series finale on Friday, we are doing a series all this week of our favorite episodes for... Uh, each of the five main characters, and and there have been a lot of regular characters on Atlantis, so I had to kind of narrow it down to the five who were on the show the longest. 
uh, it'd be kind of hard to choose a top five for a character like Samantha Carter uh, when you are just looking at her Atlantis episodes. But uh, five years of the show, five marathons on Sci-Fi Channel this week, uh, five days, and so we're doing Shepard, Taylor, Weir, McKay, and Ronan. And these are my picks, so you can feel free to sign on and disagree. You're not going to have consensus in something like this. Everyone is going to have a favorite episode that did not get selected. Yeah, but it's going well so far. People have, have, uh, I think, really been commenting well and and sharing their favorite episodes, their favorite moments for for these characters that they've grown to love over the years. And uh, I think it's it's been so far what I intended it to be, which is really kind of a week-long celebration of this show. As, as we send it off with the final episode. We've done Shepard and Taylor and Weir so far. The main discussion. Our main discussion topic today is Vegas. Episode number 19 of Atlantis's fifth and final season. This one, we saw it coming. We knew that it was going to be a, a big departure for the series. It was A lot of it was shot on location in Las Vegas. It's, a, it's another Rob Cooper written and directed by special. A Rob Cooper joint. What did you think of Vegas? Well, it was a departure, all right. And because it was uh, a departure, it really seems to be uh, love it or hate it kind of an episode. First time I watched it, I wasn't crazy about it. Mm-hmm. Because it, we, we get so sick of seeing trees. You know, they they shoot in the GVRD uh, in, in Vancouver, which is the big woods. Nothing but woods and trees and green and bark and dirt. And then you go to a place that is all dirt... Uh, like Vegas, and there was a lot of helicopter footage where it was just like, we're in Vegas, we're in Vegas, do you get it yet? Do you get it yet? We're in Vegas. And it was like, I get it. So I kind of got stuck on that. And I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't watch CSI. I don't watch The Sopranos. So I really approached those homages or homages to those shows with the cast and with the way it was shot uh, very flat. I wasn't going to get any appreciation from them, mm. uh, so I was going. I was going to see them as they were, um, and it was fine. The way that it was shot, well, I was very impressed. It's one of the things that I've just thanked God for, is because when someone like Rob Cooper, executive producer, show creator, says, "I want to direct one episode," I myself, as a director of uh, a college film, a, a feature-length college film, it was the biggest thing I've ever done in my life. No how much fun it is. And it's like, as soon as he gets that directing whiff, it's all over. So he's either going to be really good, mediocre, or he's going to suck at it. And by golly, it's a good thing that he's great at directing. He's He's, really good. He is. He's done some really cool Atlantis episodes. I think his first one was Satita in season three, and that was... It was a bit of a departure, not as much as Vegas. His first directing gig was a quiet little episode in season nine of SG-1 called Crusade. Uh, and they've just got, gotten bigger and bigger ever since. So I'm really thankful that he's he's really good at it. I mean, what, what are you going to do? You're going to say, no, Rob, sorry, you can't direct, dude. You don't have the chops for it. Leave, leave the directing to the directors, Rob. You're a writer. Why don't you go and write something <laughs> in the corner? So it's it's really great that... You know, he. I, I'm excited when Rob comes along to direct because I know that it's going to be really visually, at the very least, it's going to be visually interesting. He's good at it. He's he's obviously a, a relatively new director, at least for for the Stargate world. So he's, you know, every time he comes along, it's about one a year, and he does cool things. You know, it's it's kind of his playground and his learning studio. So he tries things that we don't see on the show. And how many times have you and I said on the podcast? 
that we want to see the Stargate producers take risks and show us things that we haven't seen before. And that's why I liked Vegas was because it is so different. And I think you yeah. can't you can't do every single episode like this because then you don't know where the heck you are. It's not it's not familiar. The show needs to have a core concept, and it's cool that uh, Vegas was a departure from it. If nothing else, it was cool that they tried. Yeah, I mean about about once every season for for an episode that's a departure, I think is is perfectly fine. I think it's great, and I love the fact that we were not having another chase around wraith corridors or. You know, the typical McKay, we're running out of power techno babble. So I am yeah. a fan of CSI. I watch the Vegas CSI almost exclusively, although not, not real religiously. Um, so I, I appreciated the, the CSI homage stuff, and it was it was an homage, not a ripoff. Uh, they, they said up front, this is, this is going to be CSI Atlantis. The visual effects like the push-up on the, the heart as the Wraith was draining his victim. That was cool, and that was that was great. The CSI do stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. As they're sort of uh, expositing what has happened to this victim, you see that mm. sort of semi-grotesque anatomical displays. Sanctuary has kind of done that sort of thing. Yeah. The first time I watched it, though, it it kind of bugged me how much of those CSI isms there are, how frequent they are, at least in the beginning of the episode. Shepard gets to the the crime scene. And and the forensics officer is explaining to him what, what what's going on and, and the victim and and there's just a lot of those CSIisms one right after the other which CSI doesn't pack them all together like that because it's kind of a little weird uh, to see one and then one and then one and then another. Rob made some very artistic choices in his shots. Um, think of things like uh, the camera kind of shaky close up uh, on the wraith as he's going up the escalator. Um, yes, that's you know yeah, with the sped up. Yeah, sped up. That's CSI doesn't do that. That that's not the CSI element. So Rob is is in addition to doing the CSI homage, he's he's coming up with a lot of his own things and and kind of mm-hmm. making a an an arty piece that is obviously very different from a typical Atlantis. Um, it takes a while to get used to, but I really think this is one of those episodes that just gets better every time you watch it. Uh, I liked it a lot more the second time I saw it. I agree. Did you notice any cameos in the episode? I did. Um, let's see. Let's go through the cameos now. The ones that are, are a little harder to catch is when the Wraith is walking through the casino on his way to the poker table. Yes. You can see Brad Wright playing cards at one of the tables. Um, I think there's a shot right next to Brad's where you can see Rob himself kind of out of focus at a poker table. And then at the poker table itself... Obviously, we have uh, a couple of guest stars, uh, the guys from The Sopranos, and uh, our friend Joel Goldsmith, the composer for Atlantis, is one of the poker players. Joel. And who else is there? The great Charlie Cohen. Charlie Cohen is uh, executive VP at MGM and a huge Stargate fan himself. Huge. That was cool to see him there. He was, uh, he was in Continuum. He was pushing Daniel's wheelchair in Continuum. Down the hall, yeah, at the Air Force Base in Alaska. Yeah. Todd Brenson is in there. I watch a lot of professional poker on TV. Todd is a professional poker player, son of the great Doyle Brenson. Any cameos that I'm forgetting? Uh, I didn't notice any others, but if you, if anyone else out there saw them, be sure to comment in the news thread let us know. Yep, and we should say that the Wraith in this episode was played by Neil Jackson, who played 
uh, Anubis's quote-unquote son, Kalek, Kalek. in uh, Season 9 of SG-1 in the episode Prototype. Great actor. He was an Alexander. Tell me what you thought of the music in this episode. A, a departure. You know, I couldn't tell that it was Joel. Um, at least I'm thinking it was Joel. I can't be sure. A lot of the guitar, you know, that was just so different. Yeah, a lot of hard rock, like on the chase scene that, yeah. that leads up to the, the jump off the building. Yeah. It really solidifies uh, my opinion that the Wraith are a bunch of punk rockers, you know. I mean, they just they just took care of that. That's another thing that I loved because, you know, we've been saying, uh, fans and, and casual observers of Atlantis alike have been saying for five years that, that the Wraith look like, you know, goths, that they look like Marilyn Manson. And so here you put a Wraith on Earth in disguise, and he literally is. I mean, that's what he is. <laughs> He's a goth. He's a punk rocker. Uh, and yeah. he listens to Marilyn Manson music. At least they, they apparently included one in this episode. They featured a number of songs. Johnny Cash, you know, you can't beat it. Yeah, got to give it up for the man in black. Yes, and Shepard, who is a Johnny Cash fan, the only item that he took from his office was his Johnny Cash poster. I was really delighted that at the end of the episode, they really featured him heavily. Mm-hmm. It was great. They picked an appropriate song, too. Yeah, it was, it was Solitary Man, which I, I had to look up today, and it's apparently originally a Neil Diamond song. But um, Johnny Cash's version is awesome, and it fits Shepard in this episode so well. Mm-hmm. What did you think of Shepard? I thought that he was appropriately familiar and yet also different. Um, I was trying to identify in, in McKay's exposition of, of Shepard's past the point mm-hmm. at which they went different ways. The Shepard that we know and this Shepard. What, what was different in their lives. I think some of the Afghani details were a little bit different. He went in to rescue a girl. Mm-hmm. A uh, girl who he was apparently involved with, or at least yeah. had feelings for. And that wasn't familiar to me in our in our reality from no. our Shepherd and, and the, the people who died in that in that op were not familiar to me. Yeah. What well, well we saw what happened, or at least some of what happened in season three's Phantoms. There was no girl there. That was his his fellow male comrade who he went in to rescue against his CO's orders. But yeah, mm. so in our reality, Shepard doesn't get drummed out. He gets reassigned to Nowheresville, McMurdo Air Base in Antarctica, and ends up flying, mm. uh, you know, shuttling people back and forth. Uh, and that's where he meets Jack O'Neill and Elizabeth Weir in Rising and gets connected with Atlantis. This is what I loved about Vegas. It's a terrific exploration of John Shepard's character because this it seems to me like this is the sort of life that John Shepard probably would have had if he had not met mm-hmm. Jack O'Neill and Elizabeth Weir. Well, I hope that our John Shepard wouldn't steal money. I mean, he's a bit of this this John Shepard is a bit of a schmuck. He he's not the best kind of character. You know, he's he's not the most honest. I mean, you saw him lift that five that five grand in cash and put it in his trunk. And he was driving away with it. Yes, exactly. Before he changed his I was, mind. This is the hero thing about here. I was like, whoa. Obviously, in our reality, Shepard does have a dark side. And, and it made me think of things like Colia's comment in the recent episode of Remnants. He says, you torture yourself every day. Um, without Atlantis and without... The, the friendships that he's made on this team, uh, I think that it doesn't surprise me that John Shepard would have this sort of a downward spiral. So yeah, the song Solitary Man uh, there at the end of the episode, I think, is 
is appropriate, especially when you think about the fact that Shepard does have this sort of self-torture, self-destructive side to him. Mm-hmm. And he was never married in this reality. No, he wasn't. That was that was one of the other things. Good for you. So what else is different in this reality? Rodney's obviously a, a very different character. Not extremely different. He, uh, when it came to Zelenka, he was exactly the same. But he was, he was a <laughs> yeah, lot more... some things never change. Right, but uh, I think he played him a little bit more suave. He was a lot um, more level-headed, as opposed to kind of buzzing around the room like a bee. I liked, I liked the change. I, I liked that he was just a little bit calmer and, and composed. Yeah, yeah. That's that's exactly what I thought was that he was kind of calm and serious. He's apparently the leader of the team in this reality. Remember when I told you I once met another version of you? Yeah. I know you'll probably think this sounds ridiculous, but uh, a little while ago we accidentally opened a rift in space-time. Went through to an alternate version of reality. It's very similar to ours in many ways. Met a team, much like the one I work with, only you were the leader. You were a hero. Saved the world several times over. So much like me. I don't think there's much difference between you and that other John Shepard I met. It's amazing how one incident can entirely alter the course of your life. Still, I like to believe you have the same strength of character. That's why I told you the truth. Some fans have asked, is this Rod from McKay and Mrs. Miller. He talks about having met Shepard before. No. So we know it's not. How do we know it's not? Because in Rod's reality, there was a Shepard on Atlantis. He was the Shepard that you couldn't get up at 8 o'clock in the morning to go golfing with. He was the Shepard that was on the Atlantis Mensa team. So this is not mm-hmm. Rod. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought so originally, is, but it's not Yeah, this is, a, this is a totally new reality that we've not seen before, and, and as far as we know, is they've had contacts with other realities and with other Shepards in Atlantis but not with ours. Right, that's right. It isn't all about us, man. Yeah, and that fact right there makes this a really unique and I think interesting episode of Stargate because we've we've seen alternate realities before and, and altered timelines like we talked about at length in a previous podcast, but we've never seen an alternate reality that the story doesn't include us and our characters at all. Uh, I would have to disagree with that, but uh, not until next week. But in terms of not knowing anything about next week, I yes, you're right. Yeah, this this was definitely Stargate's in a mirror darkly. Yeah, it certainly may may yet, with one episode to go, have an impact on us. But the story itself in Vegas, I mean, it's it's not like uh, there but for the grace of God, where our Daniel goes to a parallel reality. Right, right. This is completely self-contained in a bottle. We mm-hmm. witness something that happens, and it may have repercussions. This is the sort of storytelling that, again, you can't do it every week, but I would love to see uh, more of this. It's almost like an anthology-style episode. It's almost like an episode <laughs> of The Outer Limits, where you can kill off your main character. It's it's left a little bit ambiguous at the end of Vegas, but I think I think Shepard was dead. Yeah, uh, he gets up by and the then time he the falls. Camera <laughs> has pulled out. You know, there's no there's no ambulance coming up. Um, but yeah, you can you can kill off your main characters, and you can you can change your universe a little more radically. You can have the Wraith attack Earth, and and you can have you know the world end, like Brad Wright has written in episodes of The Outer Limits, where <laughs> yeah. the world ends. It's his that's, staple. That's the world ends. The morality tale. Yeah, I'd love to see an established sci-fi universe like Stargate or Star Trek 
do sort of anthology episodes. What did you think of the idea of a wraith going incognito on Earth? Is this plausible, or is it kind of far-fetched? Well, one of the things that have irked me about the wraith is that they set all this cool stuff up about them in the pilot episode. And then, aside from the fact that they eat humans for breakfast, we really didn't go anywhere with it. We touched mm-hmm. on their psionic powers when it served us, I, I can count two times on my fingers in the show, and the ghost aspect of it, making us see things that aren't there. We covered that a first couple of times in the first season, like a, a couple of token mentions of it, and that didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I think a wraith could be very effective on Earth at manipulating other people to survive. The poker table is the perfect example. We kind of forget the fact that they they can get in our heads. You know, it's about time they bring that back up again. They made really good use of it at the poker scene. You know, because mm-hmm. there's so much about the rate that was introduced at the very beginning that we just that they just don't ever use as as plot devices. And this was a very effective use of it. I like the fact that they said they can get inside your head, not that they can read your mind. I was just looking at our transcript from The Gift in Season 1 mm-hmm. today, and there's a line mm-hmm. in there where, where they specifically say uh, they, they can't read human minds. They're not telepathic strictly in that sense of, of like, a betazoid. But they can uh, screw with you. They can screw with you. They can make you see things. Somebody posted a comment on the site uh, that I really liked and I wanted to share it here was just that this kind of demonstrates what this wraith does, demonstrates how smart they are, their intelligence and cunning and and patience for this guy to hatch such a long-term mm-hmm. project. Because as far as we know, this was just some random dirt pilot. You know, this is not a Todd that, that we're working with here. He was fighting with uh, the F-302s in orbit, and he got shot down. And This transmitter that he's building, it took me a couple of views to, to really figure out what was his original plan, and then what do we think happened because of the ending of the episode? Did you catch enough of that to, to be able to explain it to us? Uh, well, the either the explosion or the device itself um, caused a tear in subspace. So his original plan was... To what? send a message to Pegasus uh, to invite more Wraith. Uh, he wouldn't have done it for other realities' benefit. He w- he would have done it for his own. Uh, right. He so, apparently wanted to be rescued. Right, right. So apparently, his hive was the only one who knew the location of Earth. So he was going to get more, and maybe he was maybe he was sending a signal to a specific hive that he was also allied with. We don't really know, but um, the effect though was was very different. That the signal didn't do anything in his own reality, but did so for a number of other realities. It made it to Pegasus. Yeah, and I think the explanation goes something along the lines of of uh, either it was the explosion or the fact that he was rushed. You know, I we see him at one point messing with with the wraith technology and the device that he's constructed and he's pretty gentle about it about about pulling the lever down a few mm-hmm. increments gradually. And then yeah. when he sees that the the jets are are on their way and he's about to get blown up, he runs in there and just throws it down as hard as he can. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wonder if it's just just that the fact that that he had to act, you know, he's got he's got thirty seconds, and mm-hmm. the fact that he was pushed to act that rashly might have contributed to the fact that instead of broadcasting to Pegasus, 
it punched a hole through space-time and mm-hmm. broadcast to other realities instead. Mm-hmm. And his device could not be... A ZPM would not have been efficient enough to power his device. However, the power generated by the state of Nevada was. Yeah. That's one of the things that really bothered me. Like, well, there are a lot of lights to light in the city of Las Vegas. I mean, a ZPM, which we know, if destroyed, can annihilate an entire solar system. But the state of Nevada, man, there's some stuff happening in Nevada. <laughs> Go, Nevada. We love you. So, overall, tell me what you thought of Vegas. I enjoyed it. Um, again, first time I watched it, meh. It was, it was different. It was different. Second time I watched it, it was good. Seven out of ten. Yeah, I think you've you've got to you've got to watch it enough to be able to enjoy it and get over how different it is because it's not the Atlantis that we watch week to week. You can't but... tune in to expect Stargate. I saw a friend for the first time in ten years. Met with them and they said I should watch Stargate. I said, "Don't watch Fridays. Don't watch this Friday. It is not <laughs> a good example of what Stargate is." Tune in for the finale the following week. Yeah, but at the same time, doing different things like this, I think, is going to help to attract more viewers. At least I hope. Early reports say that that Vegas did pretty strong in the ratings, so I hope it did. I hope people were flipping past and said, what the heck is this? Is this an episode of CSI? And got drawn into the Stargate mythology of it all. Yeah, overall, I think, man, it would have been great if Atlantis had done a a risky episode like this once or twice a year, starting with season two. I think Vegas would have been a terrific episode to see a couple years ago. Yeah. but it's the second to the last episode again. We've been saying this for a few for a few episodes I know, it's now. It's kind of out of place. It's it's you know fans are watching this and they're mourning the loss of Atlantis and they're saying, you know, you give us this, this isn't even our team. This is a weird episode and it's it's right before the finale. Mm-hmm. Um, but but as an episode, I think it's it's very strong. I was a little put off by it the first time I saw it, but the second time I just you know Johnny Cash and thinking about Shepard and. His, his journey as a character. Uh, I really liked it. I liked it a lot. I liked stylistic choices. Uh, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. Listener mail. Well, in our last podcast, we asked you to write in, call in, and tell us what you thought of the big casting news that came out in December for Stargate Universe. They've cast the lead as Mr. Robert Carlyle, actor from Scotland. And uh, we got some great mail, lots of voicemail on this. But first, let's read the written mail. David, who's first? Jeff. He says, Carlisle is famous and known for taking a diverse range of parts. He is a huge, nigh-unthinkable get for Stargate, and easily the biggest star they've cast in any role since RDA. Bo Bridges and Lou Gossett both came into SG-1 in the latter stages of their careers, but Carlisle is currently at the top of his game. I've been waiting for something to make me look forward to Universe, especially after the news about the writing staff remaining the same. I'll definitely tune in to see how this shakes out now. I've heard a lot of people say that they're going to watch the show now and they weren't planning on it before because an actor of Robert Carlyle's caliber was cast. And as somebody who hadn't heard of him before, that's very encouraging to me. Yeah, it's it's really Europe who is who has turned its head, and and considering that the biggest following of Stargate is in Europe, I I think that that's a a perfectly decent thing to do. 
SG Mom writes, Like David and Darren, I'm not familiar with Robert Carlyle beyond a passing, I remember that face vaguely from the Bond movie sort of way. Obviously, he is a much bigger name in the UK than here in the US from everything I've read. I was expecting a household name for the lead character, and I'm still hoping they cast someone with real name recognition for Colonel Young to draw people into watching SGU. The nice thing about acting talent is, unless we're talking British comedy, his chops will extend across the uh, the pond and and be cool over here in the U.S. and Canada, too. If this guy's a good actor, we're going to see it in the first scene. Luisco says, I've seen all of Robert Carlyle's major work and know he's a terrific actor. I was already looking forward to Universe, and this casting news has made me even more so. I understand a lot of fans are planning not to watch Universe, but Robert Carlyle's talent alone will be a great reason to at least give the show a chance. Are you going to go and uh, specifically see uh, some of the stuff that he's done? Yeah, I'm going to start Netflixing. I hear there's uh, a lot of profanity and strong accents in train spotting but i think Ooh, i may try strong accents i may try uh train spotting and full monty i don't know okay. that one never appealed to me maybe i'll do the 24 movie instead yeah i'm staying away from him completely i mean obviously we just read here he has diverse range so he's capable of a lot but i really want to keep a clean slate for robert carlisle's uh david rush says david reed you just wish they had named him david reed i wish that would have been a little too spot on. Mm. Yes, Colonel Marshall Sumner. We also have some voicemail on this topic and one about last week's episode, Vegas. Sure, let's listen to them. Hello, this is uh, Steve. I'm calling from Istanbul in Turkey. Uh, I just wanted to talk about uh, Robert Carlyle and uh, Stargate Universe. I know he's not that well known in uh, in the U.S., but uh, I've known him for a few years, and uh, I was really surprised when uh, I found out uh, he was cast for the one of the main characters. So uh, it's uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing this. Also, just like I say, uh, you know, being out here in Turkey, uh, we don't get a Sci-Fi Channel and things like that, but. Uh, listening to you guys on uh, you know, the, uh, the podcast every uh, week or so is uh, it's really great and it's good to keep up with everything. And I uh, hope you guys keep up the good work. Hey, this is Dave calling from Montreal, Canada. Uh, I just saw the episode Vegas. thought it was very cool, very awesome. Uh, I give it a good solid 8 on 10. Uh, maybe downgraded to 7 on 7.5 on 10 just for a couple annoying factors. But quickly, I'd like to say that I, my respect for the race has grown like tenfold after this episode. I wish they would have played it two, three years ago. Because until now, we've only had like Todd and Michael and kind of like the special characters, the, the abnormal. The, all the other races are kind of like, you know, hissing, mindless, you know, soul-sucking automatons. Whereas, you know, in this episode, it's just some random race that's shot down from his dart. And he, he, he goes to Earth and, you know, he... he basically integrates and puts on makeup. He wins money at the casino, and it was awesome. Uh, it just gives you a whole, you know, respect for their, for, for their race, basically. Uh, the one thing I found a little bit frustrating, a little bit annoying, was the ending. Loved it, don't get me wrong. Um, I thought it was cool that he sent out the message, the, the beacon, and it got sent to, like, okay, it saved their world because it got cut short, but all these other alternate realities, um, it got magnified, and the signal went out full force. So 
oh, it's just so frustrating that there isn't going to be a future season because I would have loved to have seen the repercussions of that. You know, maybe in one of those realities, uh, the Earth will be turned into a big, you know, McHuman Happy Meal. Hi, this is Scott calling from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I was calling in reference to actually both this week's listener question and last week's listener question because I found out about the listener question a little too late. First, about the casting news for Stargate Universe, I am extremely excited that we were able to get such a name as Robert Carlyle. Unlike David and Darren, I actually recognize this guy immediately. And if we can get an actor of this man's caliber on Stargate, it is it is an incredible coup for us. Secondly, uh, back to the last week's list of question about uh, the greatest moment this year in Stargate, because I was so wanting to answer that question, was having to be the replicator reveal in the Ark of Truth. Joel's music and the moment and the build-up. I literally jumped out of the couch the day I was watching that movie because I watched it. I went to the store, bought the DVD, and watched it that day. Hi, this is Brian from San Antonio, Texas. I'm going to have to disagree with David's statement that SG-1 did not have a definitive end. It did in uh, the episode Mobius, the uh, eight-season finale, and even two episodes before that when the Guave storyline had opened up, the episode preceding Mobius Part 1. can't remember the name. Sorry about that. But uh, they had said every, they had done everything they had set out to do with SG-1. The Gould were defeated. The, the um, Jaffa had their freedom. And then Sci-Fi Channel wanted more SG-1, not Stargate Command. So they came with the Ori thing, and Season 9 was basically a whole new show. This is Mark from Columbus. I'm calling about the casting of Robert Carlyle in Stargate Universe. Um, as somebody who's very eh, skeptical about Stargate Universe, I'm very encouraged by the casting of Robert Carlyle. I've been a huge fan of his, so I'm, look, I'm looking forward to seeing him. And the fact that he's a doctor with maybe ulterior motives leads me to believe that maybe he might be a kind of a Dr. Smith character from Lost in Space, perhaps. Um, I don't know, but... Uh, I, for one, have finally heard some good news about Stargate Universe, so uh, I'm going to take it with some positive uh, apprehension, maybe, and uh, I'll definitely be there in July to check it out. Thanks to everybody for calling in and writing in this week. Here's the listener question for next week. What did you think of the series finale of Stargate Atlantis, Enemy at the Gate? Was this a fitting way to cap off the series, or would you have liked to see something different? You can give us a call on the podcast hotline and leave us your voicemail. That number is area code 616-712-1647. Or you can post over on the show notes page or at GateWorld Forum. Calling in increases your chances of getting on the air, though. Drastically increases. So we're back in the new year in full form for the podcast. Here's the upcoming schedule next week on the 13th. We're talking about our final episode of Season 5, Enemy at the Gate. Then what we're going to do on the 20th, we're going to come back and do a recap show and talk about all of Season 5, talk about our highs and lows, hits and misses, and then 27th is going to be more of a, a challenging show, and, and once again, like our fan entitlement discussion, I hope a bit of a controversial show, um, we're going to do a bit of deconstruction on the series as a whole, five years, what we thought uh, really worked well, and maybe what we wish they would have done differently. And Tammy Farrar is joining us for that discussion. Sweet. Don't know that I will, but until I can find me.
Thanks for joining us once again for this week's podcast. Give us a call if you have an answer to this week's listener question or anything else Stargate-related that's on your mind. Again, that number is 616-712-1647 or post on the podcast feedback thread at GateWorld Forum. In this episode, we talked about Vegas, the second-to-last episode of Stargate Atlantis, and gave you a preview of this week's new interview with actor Ben Browder. For links to everything we talked about today, head over to GateWorld.net and look for the episode number 24 show notes. From GateWorld, this is Darren Sumner. And I'm David Reed. And you've been listening to the GateWorld Podcast. Solitary man.